0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be joined in just a moment by Peter Wagner, who is an attorney and the executive director of the East Hampton based Prison Policy Initiative. I think we should spend a couple minutes this morning, Buzz, at least reflecting on what happened in Memphis, Tennessee, a horrifying homicide. And I'd appreciate your thoughts.
2: Well, um, my thoughts, first of all, Bill, uh, not very long ago, you and I worked on a clemency case. I spent time in Memphis. I went to see the Lorraine Hotel, where Martin Luther King was was assassinated. The day after, he said, I might not make it to the mountaintop with you. Uh, and, and that was so moving for me. And I know that Memphis it had a female African-American police chief It was just trying to um, reflect uh, fairness and, and equality and justice in the way that it was reorganizing law enforcement. It's such a tragedy what happened. Protesters, again, t- took to the street yesterday. Uh, the death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. We have five police officers who have been um, charged with uh, varying degrees of homicide. Uh, and I think three others yesterday were relieved of their duty Um it is and demonstrators marched throughout three, three, the country. Three, three
1: uh, EMTs, two more police officers. Yeah, one of whom was white. Apparently, arrived on the scene and made a racially disparaging remark and said, "Get him," or words to those effect. To so, that effect,
2: you know, Bill, th- this whole thing that there is the Bureau of Justice <laughs> Statistics, which is an arm of the Justice Department, um, has uh, done work on ARDs, arrest-related deaths. And I was looking over one nine-year period, there were 4,813 deaths that were reported to the B- BJS while in custody, taken into custody. Four in 10 of those were attributed to suicide, accidental injury, and natural causes. Six were listed as cause unknown. You have to wonder what you know. What 60% of almost 5,000 deaths was caused by. Did you say what percentage? 60%. Over a nine-year period, of five thousand people arrest-related deaths, Uh, you know we see the ones that are, you know, Rodney King-ish, or in. Well, the ones that the ones that are captured on video—that's what we see. That's what we see. You're exactly right, and and uh, you know the, uh, what happened in Minneapolis, just it just keeps happening. It's so hard to understand how we can effectively have police reform when it seems enculturated in so many people who. Join police forces and make that a career. Well, I, I
1: actually am going to write about this for the Daily Hampshire Gazette for the, my column this weekend, and I think that certainly it's part of the issue is who is attracted to police work. But there are good people who are also... I mean, it's not every the ex-military and I want to carry a gun and I want to be forceful and I want to be in charge and all of that. Yeah, sure, there's some of that. That's. But I think that the real police reform has got to come that we have to reduce the number of interactions which makes these kind of situations possible. If you hadn't had the stop, Tyree Nichols would be alive.
2: That's true. And this
1: stop did not have to happen. And
2: and I really want to get to Peter Wagner, but I just want to take this opportunity. I I taught criminology over a 20-year period at, at Greenfield Community College, including when the Quinn bill resulted in law enforcement officials getting a higher salary if they took Credits at a, co- at a college, and so I had during the Michael Brown and all the you know the those um, uh, stops and insults and deaths that resulted in Black Lives Matter movement. I I had people in the classroom who were saying this is all just the media. It's you know like the media making something out of nothing, and and I we just keep seeing it and no matter how much I worked on those people, there were certain people who refused to accept the fact that police sometimes do criminal acts. I think that is indisputable, but I
1: think that the culture, police culture, which is getting a lot of attention, at least as a talking topic today, this week, last week, uh, is something, there is something to it. I don't think that all the training in the world is going to change human nature. And I think that, therefore, what we need are policies that make sense, that reduce the opportunities and the chance for tragedy. You're here. Let's turn to Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner is an attorney, he's the executive director and the founder, co founder of the Prison Policy Initiative, which is based in East Hampton. He co founded the Prison Policy Initiative in 2001. Peter Wagner, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Tell us a bit more about the history and the purpose of the Prison Policy Initiative for those who have not been with you and me
3: on our show before. Hi, thanks for having me here. Um, So yeah, I co-founded the Prison Policy Initiative 20 years ago when I was in law school, when I discovered that there were so many people in prison, it was breaking how our democracy worked. And what it was is the the census bureau counts people in prison as if they were willing residents of the correction facility and then state and local governments use these this data to draw legislative districts and it had the unintended side effect of giving extra political representation to the parts of states that have prisons and diluting the votes of everyone who doesn't live next to a large prison and being yet another political thumb on the scale that gave the system of mass incarceration another reason to advocate for even more prisons. So I discovered this in law school and I wrote an academic paper about it. And I then uh, needed to create my own think tank in order to promote this research and to spark a national movement. So it was a little crazy journey starting from when I was in law school- Where where, where was that? Graduate student at UMass, uh, Western New England University, um, and founded the organization with a graduate student at UMass and a undergraduate at Smith College. And we started a think tank that then sparked a national movement And at all times, we are always looking for issues that were kind of a stepping stone to talk about how mass incarceration is harmful, but also how it's harmful to the people in the system, and it's also harmful to people who are not in the system. And so we started working on elections and then um, also did other issues like the one we're going to talk about today.
1: Tell us just a bit more, if you would, about what you discovered Um, And, of course, you grew the staff over time over the last 20-plus years for the prison policy initiative. I'd I'd like to know more about the 2 million-plus people in the United States locked up in prisons and jails, uh, involuntarily moved somewhere else, and then they are counted as if they were part of the population. I mean, what a stupid system. Well, actually, it's not stupid. It's smart. It's just rigged.
3: It's smart, it's rigged, and it's also an accident. So the Census Bureau counts people in prison at the location facility because they always did. And 200 years ago, it didn't matter whether you counted someone in prison from Springfield or in Walpole, as long as you counted them in the state of Massachusetts, because initially the census data was only used for congressional apportionment. So as long as you counted someone in the right state, it didn't matter. And the Census Bureau has been very good about updating its methodology as society changed, as the needs of people for better data, more accurate data changed, and in all kinds of ways the Census Bureau has made their data better and more responsive, except in the context of incarcerated people. That's where um, the unfortunate rigging, to use your word, um, comes in. So the Census Bureau has managed to not change this rule. And so what we've been doing is trying to draw attention to this weird historical quirk that impacts our democracy, trying to, working at the federal level to try to get the Census Bureau to make this change, but also working with state and local governments to come up with their own ways to change the data. So we've gotten 12 states so far to, Um, figure out where incarcerated people come from, and to do what the Census Bureau won't do and just count incarcerated people at home.
1: Let's turn to the reason and the issue that I wanted to talk about with you this morning, and it is the issue of how family relations and relationships are maintained when people are put in prison behind the razor wire. And a lot is happening today, this week, this month, uh, both federally and in the state. And I don't think it's getting a lot of publicity, and I think it should. So I would appreciate it if you would give us the overview of what is happening with regard to communications, this maintenance and maintaining of family relationships in prison, both federally and in the state.
3: Sure. The important thing is that human contact matters. That's, how, that's, that's what makes us people. And In the context of incarceration the main way that people keep in touch with their family members is via the telephone and in short the calls are too expensive and we'll talk a little bit about how much like calls are for you and me you you and i did many phone calls and emails to discuss um coming on this show and those calls and those emails cost us basically nothing um I pay unlimited fees for something, a small fee to pay for unlimited coverage. If we, you know, if you were to pay for individual phone call, this would be a penny per minute or much, much less. But in the prison and jail context, a simple email, a simple phone call can be very expensive. Yeah, and go- in the context, in the prison context, yeah, please, Bill.
1: You know, let, me, let me just add this, because I know you know it, but it's perhaps not self-evident to our listeners. What all of the studies show is that the most important factor In predicting whether a person who is released from prison will be a law-abiding and contributing person in their community is have they had contact with friends and family while they've been inside. I think that's right.
3: That's totally right. And so what the high rates do is that they act as a barrier to communications the more difficult you make it for family members to afford this communication, the less of it's going to happen. Because remember, incarcerated people are poor. They t- either don't have a job when they're in prison or jail, or if they do, they make pennies, pennies an hour. Um, so the people that have to pay for these phone calls are the family members. And so like, why does this matter? And it's be- it's obvious that high rates are bad for incarcerated people um, because they're the ones who are trying to have the family contact. Um, It's bad for their family members. People who are not accused of a crime, or not convicted of a crime, but have a family member who's incarcerated or awaiting trial, they're the ones who have to pay for these calls because the incarcerated people don't have any money. It's bad for them. And as you said, making it harder for people to succeed on release is bad for that individual, it's bad for their family members, and it's bad for society. So it's a societal choice to make crime worse by charging too much in prisons and jails. Like that's a mistake. And we can't really kind of forget when we're talking about the cost of this that we're talking about some of the poorest families in the Commonwealth. So the rates used to be a dollar a minute. Now they're much less. They're about Massachusetts prisons and jails. They're 14, 15 cents typically uh, per minute. That's, if you're looking at it in coins for one minute, it's not very many coins. If you look at it in the context of doing a long phone call, that starts to add up, and if you look at it in the context of poor people, it's it's unconscionable, and the really the question is why does it cost fourteen cents per minute to do a phone call in a prison? Well. You and I can choose our phone provider based on which company gives me the best service at the best price. If I don't like it, I can switch from AT&T to Verizon or vice versa in a minute's notice. The way it works in a prison or jail is that the prison picks the facility, the prison picks the company that serves. The prison picks the prices and then the family members pay the bills. But so why is it so expensive? Are the companies greedy? Yes. But the facilities are also greedy. In Massachusetts, in the prison system, most of the cost that families pay goes not to the company, but to the facility. Most of the money is a kickback to the Department of Corrections or to the jail. So that's a completely unconscionable tax on the poorest families in the Commonwealth. Make them pay too much, discourage contact as a way to raise revenue. That's just backwards.
1: We're speaking with Peter Wagner. He is the executive director of the Prison Policy Initiative, which is based in East Hampton. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, he is going to tell us about what is happening in the state about this right now, this week, and what's happening in the federal government and the Congress as well. You're going to want to hear this. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Always
2: be a good boy. Don't ever play with guns. But I shot a
0: man in Reno. Just to watch him die. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
4: Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small, family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com.
0: What are the things on the menu at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant that were on the menu when Paul and Elizabeth's opened in 1978? There's fish and chips, which is tempura-style fish and chips with an ultra-light batter. There's those enormous whole wheat rolls. There's Paul and Elizabeth's fish chowder, so rich and creamy it's kind of hard to believe it's dairy-free. There are new things on the menu all the time at Paul and Elizabeth's, side by side with things that we never seem to tire of, like pie.
5: Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton.
6: Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
1: And we are speaking with Peter Wagner, who is the executive director of the East Hampton-based Prison Policy Initiative. We are talking about how the policies of both the state governments, local governments, and the federal governments prohibit, as a practical matter, continued family relationships because the way family relationships are maintained because many persons who are locked up behind the razor wire are very far away from their homes. And phone calls are what maintain those relationships. And phone calls from prison are very expensive. And it is in the interest of the institutions to maintain those high costs because they are paid a large percentage of the, of the fees that are paid by the families, of course. Uh, they get the money back. So it's in the interest of a jail or prison to have high fees for the phone calls because they make money on it. Now, these are all contracts between individual institutions and their providers, and in fact, Peter, we were talking off the air about how uh, local institutions here, those contracts are for renewal. What can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah, so the Hampton County contract has already expired, so they and so it's been extended. So that the at some point very soon, if not already, the con, the county will be putting out a request for proposals for a new contract, and. The reality is, a county can change its mind on its contract and renegotiate that anytime it wants, but the county has trem- much more political leverage to do so before the contract is put out, and it's very it's much easier politically to get a county to change its priorities if the public can start to talk with the sheriff and start to pressure the sheriff now before that request for proposals is written. So, Hamden County theoretically could be issuing a request for proposals at any point. So it is totally ripe in Hamden County to be talking to the sheriff now about new rates and the Hampshire County contract is officially ends in November of this year. So if the county is planning to put out a request for proposals now, as opposed to just extending it, they're probably just starting to talk about that process right now. So this is a perfect time to check in with Hampshire County.
1: And when you talk about checking in with Hampshire County, what we're really talking about, I take it, is uh, checking in with the sheriff who is responsible for uh, the conduct of the business of of the jail and House of Corrections.
3: Yes, the sheriff and the administrator, that's entirely under their purview.
1: And in Franklin County?
3: Franklin County the contract the current contract runs until 2028 doesn't mean the county can't decide to change it and renegotiate that but um, Franklin County it's a little bit so slightly higher lift.
1: Let me ask you this. there is a legislative proposal uh, in Massachusetts to try to increase uh, family relationships to maintain family relationships. Tell us what's happening here in Massachusetts.
3: So there's a bill. Uh, currently pending in the legislature, which very importantly passed last year and was vetoed by Governor Baker, which would shift the cost of the calls from the families to the state. So in essence, to, from the perspective of incarcerated people and their families, it would make these calls free. And this is something that encourages communication. It puts the cost where it should be born, and it removes all the inefficiencies of charging the commissions and billing families, makes this much cheaper in the net. And does it does a social good. And this is something that because it passed last year and the governor vetoed it and Governor Baker's gone, um, this bill is expected to pass this year.
1: And the, and the new governor, Amora Healy, is expected to sign it?
3: I have not seen her talk about that issue, but I would expect her to sign it.
2: And it sounds like listeners should encourage her to do so. This is buzz, Peter Wagner. Um, I just wanted to point out, we're talking about the cost um, to inmates and um, the revenue to institutions. But uh, when I, I represented Guantanamo detainees and I learned from Physicians for Human Rights that did a book, an entire book by experts on what constitutes torture, One of the things that constitutes torture is isolation itself. And one of the best ways to deculturate people and make them feel all alone, only in a prison culture, is to make it difficult to be in communications with the people on the outside, particularly people that they love and trust and that are part of the culture that they belong to before they went inside. So I'm sure in your experience as executive director of the initiative, i am sure that you've experienced what happens to people when they're cut off from communications with their loved ones
3: yeah this is emotional and then eventually physical and mental damage that's being done by the state for no legitimate purpose um i can be generous and say it was an accident commission started off small and as the cost of phones went down for you and i Um, the costs stayed really high for prisons and jails because of this commission structure and because people didn't care about incarcerated people and their families. But if we want to care about incarcerated people and their families as people, and if we want to care about the health and safety of our larger society, um, removing these costs is a very cost-effective way to do that.
1: So, Peter Wagner, let me ask you something that uh, may be obvious, but I, I, I need to ask it. We are, as far as I know, in the year 2023, we're talking about phone calls. Why why shouldn't we be talking about video calling and electronic messaging and uh, other ways that people can be – should be able, in my opinion, to communicate with their families, uh, to be able to see the face of their children or their spouse? Uh and all those calls, of course, can be monitored and recorded by the by the prison or jail. So there's not a security issue. Can that happen? It does it happen.
3: It can happen. It does happen. In many ways, in the prison context, it ends up being worse. And that's kind of the next frontier for things that we need to worry about. So the context is as. The federal government and states have started to regulate the cost of pr- uh, prison and jail telephone calls you've seen the industry start to push. Um, other services that are useful like email like video calling and what unfortunately they've done is charge unconscionable sums of money or link it to taking away other previous services, whether it's um, video it's helpful to be able to see you i'm talking to you via skype call so that i can see you and we can gesture and nod back and forth and that's a helpful addition to this audio communication that other people are experiencing but in the prison context very or jails very often when video calling gets added it has an expensive charge of 50 cents a minute, a dollar a minute. And sometimes it's linked to things like banning the traditional visits. So not only is the facility trying to discourage someone's mother to not drive to the facility, certainly additionally, charging someone's mother, you know, 50 or cents or a dollar a minute to have a conversation with her son. They're also trying to discourage her from coming to the facility so they don't have to be bothered with her coming into the visiting room and that they can further dehumanize people. So these services are good, but as they're rolled out, they're pretty bad. Like I don't know how many emails you and I had back and forth about scheduling for this call. Um in the prison context, would those emails for even at us at in our incomes, would those emails have been worth 25 or 50 cents apiece?
1: For you, Peter, yeah. probably, but <laughs> but I'd have to. Eva- no, I understand the point you're making. Absolutely. I mean, th- th- this is an intention. This is intentionality. We're going to cut people off from their communities, their homes, their families, their loved ones.
3: And this is something that we've lost a lot of sleep on. We've done a lot of research in the video industry and that we have a report coming out soon about the electronic messaging issue um, industry and we're updating some previous work we've done. And the reason you see me talk about phones more is because of how slow state and federal re- legislators and regulators have been, that they're just really starting to get aggressive now on those cases. So we are behind. And we need to catch up because this industry is moving fast and that they are um, putting a lot of pressure on the facilities to accept really bad contracts that are bad for the facilities and bad for the families.
1: And will these these aspects of telecommunications be part of the contracts of the RFP, the request for proposals that are being put out by Hamden County and Hampshire County this year?
3: I would expect that both of those counties will be looking for a big bundled service that includes phones and video and email. That's, that's likely, that's the trend where everybody's going. I don't remember offhand what services they currently have right now, but almost all counties are asking for that. However, I should actually say, almost all counties end up with that. Not all counties know what they're looking for, and when counties don't know what they're looking for, they tend to get a worse deal. So that's an important question to ask the sheriff of, are you going to be looking for these services? Do you want them? And is the cost matter to you? Does the quality matter to you? Are you going to link it to other bad things? are you um those are all questions that are really important to address um during that rfp or request for proposals process and we have a bunch of guides on our website about the questions that facilities should be asking um and that family members should be asking of the facility so that this is done right because otherwise the the companies drive the process and the facilities get what they get
2: bill we led with talking about the policing culture and how it needs to change the correctional culture thanks to People like Peter, thanks to the prison policy initiative, and those efforts, there's a chance that we can change this horrific culture of indifference to human needs.
1: peter, let's let's conclude with this. Uh, I've mentioned, and you've mentioned the bill pending in front of the uh, state legislature now that passed the last session, but uh, needs needs to be. need to be reintroduced and voted on again because Governor Baker vetoed it. Um, Is there anything that uh, people on the street out of the side of the facilities and outside of this uh, 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 particular issue um, can do, either with regard to the state legislation or the federal legislation that you with the Prison Policy Initiative are encouraging?
3: Um, Well, Massachusetts, I would contact the governor. And express support for this bill make sure the governor's committed to signing it and committed to pushing for it so this gets passed through the legislature as soon as possible and i think in the cases of hampton and hampshire county it's ask the sheriff what's the plan for that rfp when's it going to be issued is the county going to refuse a commission um is the county going to confuse a commission refuse a commission and um, how important are low rates and make the sheriffs commit to that
1: And will the state legislation supersede these individual contracts or cabin in what their flexibility or uh, discretion is
3: the state legislation is really well written it will um override the contracts or require contracts to be renegotiated um and it'll create a um and it'll close a lot of the possible loopholes like will prevent facilities from banning visits um to to create contract to create demand for video services so the the so Massachusetts legislation is very well designed.
1: We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Peter Wagner. He is the founder and executive director of the Prison Policy Initiative, a really important uh, uh, group of advocates uh, in, in, in East Hampton with a statewide reach. We really appreciate your being with us today, Peter, and we really appreciate all your work.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP.
5: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera does not plan to sign an ordinance recently passed by the City Council that would limit the number of cannabis dispensaries in town. Earlier this month, the City Council capped the number of pot shops to 12, with exemptions made for social equity candidates historically harmed by the war on drugs. Just because the mayor has indicated she will not sign the ordinance does not mean it won't pass, however. If she does not veto the ordinance by this Thursday, the limit, the first of its kind in Western Mass, will automatically become law in Northampton. A local nonprofit is raising money to help veterans in need of fuel assistance. The Warming Hearts program of the United Way of Pioneer Valley has launched to collect donations to help veterans and surviving spouses with fuel assistance. To donate, visit UWPV.org slash donate. Jason Newmark, Chair of the UWPV board, says during these trying times of skyrocketing fuel costs, UWPV wants to provide for the men and women who served our country who may just need a little help to get through the winter. Longmeadow police are investigating a robbery that took place at a Berkshire bank location Monday morning. Nobody was injured in the two minutes it took the alleged robber to enter the bank location, present the teller with a handwritten note demanding money, and leave in a Honda CRV. Longmeadow and state police are asking for the public's help in identifying the bank robber and encourage anyone with information about who could have done this to contact local authorities.
0: Becoming mostly sunny today, breezy and cool with a high of 30 to 34. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 20s, overnight lows in the teens. And a partly to mostly sunny day tomorrow, 28 to 34. Much colder for the end of the week. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
5: This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
7: Yo soy Johan Rascheevega con la Sintesis Informativa de Holyoke Media. Los archivos nacionales han pedido a los expresidentes y vicepresidentes de Estados Unidos que vuelvan a verificar sus registros personales en busca de documentos clasificados luego de la noticia de que el presidente Joe Biden y el exvicepresidente Mike Pence tenían dichos documentos en su poder. Los archivos enviaron una carta el jueves a representantes de expresidentes y vicepresidentes que se remonta a Ronald Reagan para garantizar el cumplimiento de la ley de registros presidenciales. La ley establece que todos los registros creados o recibidos por el presidente son propiedad del gobierno de los Estados Unidos y serán administrados por los archivos al final de una administración. Los archivos enviaron la carta a los representantes de los expresidentes Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George H. W. Bush y Ronald Reagan, así como a los exvicepresidentes Pence, Biden, Dick Cheney, Al Gore y Dan Quayle. En otras informaciones, Estados Unidos está listo para hacer que las vacunas contra el COVID-19 se parezcan más a una vacuna anual contra la gripe. Un cambio importante en la estrategia, a pesar de una larga lista de preguntas sobre cómo protegerse mejor contra un virus que aún muta rápidamente. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos pidió a sus asesores científicos el jueves que ayudaran a sentar las bases para cambiar a refuerzos una vez al año para la mayoría de los estadounidenses y cómo y cuándo actualizar periódicamente la receta de las inyecciones. El panel asesor estuvo mayormente de acuerdo con el enfoque de la FDA. Mirando hacia el futuro, la FDA dijo que a la mayoría de los estadounidenses les irá bien si reciben un refuerzo una vez al año dirigido a las variantes más nuevas en el otoño. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
5: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
1: And we welcome to the show Dave Waddles. He is the black bear and fur bearer biologist for mass wildlife. And he is with us today because we want you to know about the talk he is giving. It will be by Zoom, sponsored by Historic Northampton and the Broadbook Coalition about black bears in Massachusetts. It is again, this will be uh, sponsored by Historic Northampton this Thursday, February 2nd at 7 o'clock. And you can sign up for this. Free and open to the public uh, presentation of Black Bears in Massachusetts by going to Historic Northampton's website. Dave Waddles, thank you so much for being with us. I was fascinated to read that a lot of your research, um, and again, you, uh, Dave Waddles got his master's and doctorate in uh, fishing and wildlife conservation from UMass Amherst, uh, that a lot of your research involves Northampton of all places. And I was struck by that because I had an experience. Well, I came home and my wife told me about her experience, which is she came home, the cats were just freaked out. She walked up onto the porch. She didn't understand why the cats were in such a tizzy. And then a bear with a collar came out from underneath our porch. And her first reaction was, why would someone let a bear, a pet bear, (laughs) off their leash. (laughs) That would have been the wrong reaction. However, the bear did eventually, with its scholar, leave and uh, trundle on down the road into the meadows. Uh, A lot of your research about black bears has, in fact, been in Northampton. Really interesting to me. Can you tell us about that?
6: Yeah, the state, in uh, collaboration with various researchers over the years at UMass, have been doing research on bears in the state, going back to the 1980s. Um, and one of the historic study areas was the Northampton Williamsburg area, uh, as well as up in Rowe and uh, in Hawley and Savoy. And so we've been collaring bears in, in the area for, for decades now to learn about their habitat use, uh, as well as their survival and reproduction. So we've had a number of collared females uh, who you very much are Northampton bears and use the, the city for a large portion of their home range
1: and they know when the what garbage day is in the various neighborhoods how, how do they, what do you mean northampton bears
6: yeah so these uh i mean so in the since i was at umass we started putting out uh gps collars on bears so we get a location every 45 minutes of where the bears are and so we know exactly what they're doing and they are spending a lot of time uh, in neighborhoods in backyards in houses taking advantage of all the food we have around our homes. And and certainly Garbage Day is one of those. Um, they're smart animals and they figure out the patterns of those things and 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 basically are being trained by people to come come around our homes for food. Do they hang
1: out in the city or do they, you know, travel?
6: They travel, but they basically spend you know, for the couple bears that we have collared right now, over half their lives I- inside the city limits. So uh, very much using small little patches of forest between the neighborhoods, but then going backyard to backyard to go to bird feeders and other food sources.
1: <laughs> it sounds like such a bad idea in some ways. How many bears are you tracking this way?
6: We currently have 35 females collared throughout the state. So from um, the Housatonic Valley, you know, south of Pittsfield, uh, Pittsfield, excuse me, um, out to around Worcester. Um, And so those females as well as their cubs were were tracking and monitoring.
1: Now, Dave Waddles, you are a black bear and fur bearer biologist. I think that's your job title. Uh, At the risk of uh, exposing my ignorance, what does it mean to be a fur bearer biologist?
6: So, fur bears are the species that were traditionally trapped for their their pelts. So, it's our coyotes, bobcats, beavered muskrats, fox, uh, our weasels, so fishers. So, I essentially am the the bear and carnivore beaver biologist, if you will.
0: (laughs) Yes, Dan, you you? Yes, I'm on the board, Bill. I had a question. Yes. Are people supposed to be afraid of bears? Are bears afraid of people?
6: Well the the thing we, we take advantage of and, and the reason we can have black bears living in the city of northampton is that black bears aren't inherently aggressive towards people um so are aggressive or
1: are not aggressive
6: are, are not inherently aggressive so if we were talking about a, a brown bear or a grizzly bear we'd be having a very different conversation a brown bear in northampton would not be a good thing um but these black bears are literally just there um in taking advantage of the food, you know, and it's kind of one of those, if people give them space, uh, people and bears can live in close proximity without any serious conflicts.
1: You report, or the Mass Mass Wildlife reports, that there has been a remarkable recovery in the last 50 years of the black bear population. Can you tell us more about that?
6: Yep, bears were historically found all the way to the coast in, in pre-colonial times when Massachusetts was 99 percent forest. Uh, when European colonists arrived, we converted most of the forest to farmland uh, and bears were hunted for food as competitors. Um, and so basically in, in Massachusetts and in many places in the east, the bear population was virtually eliminated. And so in mass, we had a small remnant population in the northern Berkshires. Um, and it's from the slow growth and recovery of that population that we now have bears throughout our state. There are now bears in Connecticut. Um, but it's taken uh, you know 40, 50 years for that recovery and expansion to take place, and it's still happening today. Bears are continuing to expand and uh, encroach on the Greater Boston suburbs uh, these days.
1: I can't wait to see the, the black bears at the State <laughs> House. Really, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I, I,
6: would, I, I can.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I would like to know. Uh, I, I take it that part of your job is involved with uh, conservation and preservation of habitat for bears. And I'm wondering whether or not the, the bears encroaching, yeah, that's the wrong word, but the bears existing or coexisting in urban or semi-urban environments like Northampton, whether that results in some pushback uh, against your work saying enough with the bears already.
6: Yes, uh, certainly there is. Unfortunately there's conflict with bears. Bears are a species that is driven by food. And so, you know, for some people, um, you know, just having the back, bear in the backyard is, you know, a, a terrifying experience. Other people who, a big issue for us these days is bears and backyard chickens. Um, as bears have been trained to come to backyards by feeding at bird feeders, and as everyone is de- determined that they've become a backyard chicken farmer, you can't build a chicken coop that can keep a bear out. And so bears are regularly breaking into chicken coops, eating chickens, destroying coops. So we're really trying to get the message out to the public to use electric fencing to protect your chickens and to help the bears from learning these bad behaviors.
2: Uh, Hi, Dave. This is Buzz. uh, uh, And I wanted to ask, I live up in the Hilltowns at about 1,500 feet. So bears are part of our life uh, where I live, and we all have a a very copacetic uh, relationship with our bears. But I've never been clear, how large is a bear's home range
1: And while you're at, and while you're on giving us dimensions, how large are the bears?
6: Yeah. So, so our bears are in in Northampton. You've got some large bears Uh, because they eat so many, uh, eat at so many bird feeders and dumpsters and things. The females we have collared in Northampton are some of our largest. Uh, One weighed 272 pounds in the den last year. The other we couldn't weigh because she was so fat. We think she was over three hundred pounds, <laughs> um, but some of the males are in the range of five hundred pounds. But you know, an average female is about two hundred and twenty-five pounds in a suburban area, around one hundred and sixty pounds in a more rural area.
2: And in what's their home of, range?
6: Yeah, in terms of the area, this is this is one of the interesting things when we first started putting GPS collars on, on bears. West of the Connecticut River where we have um, longer term occupation by bears and higher bear densities, it was 40 square kilometers. The bears we had collared east of the Connecticut River where we had much lower densities, over 200 square kilometers. But in the 10 years we've had GPS collars on bears in the east, the bear population has started to increase very rapidly. And as it's done so, those home ranges have shrunk now and are approaching. the same size as bears west of the river so uh, the size of the home range really is dependent on the density of bears we think and
2: are they territorial do they go into each other's home range freely
6: there is some overlap and you know the the females certainly will will interact quite often they'll be um the the cub the female cubs will use a portion of their mother's range and there tends to be a lot of overlap over time with them um, but then with other bears not as much but they're not true territorial animals where they defend their territory from other bears.
1: We're speaking with Dave Waddles. He will be giving a talk, Black Bears in Massachusetts, on Zoom, sponsored by Historic Northampton. That will be this Thursday, February 2nd, at 7 o'clock. This is in partnership with the Broadbook Coalition. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, I want to ask whether we would be seeing bears now or should they be hibernating? And what does it mean if they're not? We'll be right
2: back. I can barely wait.
6: Some folks never seen a bear at all. Some folks say the bears go around eating Davis And Some folks got a bear across the hole. Some folks say the bears go around smelling bad.
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Push, push, come on, one more, let's go, go, go.
5: Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong, or perhaps we've got it all right. At Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are, to get you where you wanna be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together, Amherst or Northampton.
4: Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. It's recommended you dress them scantily to accentuate their volume and complement their flavor profile atlas farms winter greens salad mix five unique greens in a harmonious blend that tastes like this time of year decorate your salad with a colorful confetti of watermelon radish or purple daikon add crumbled goat cheese or roasted pumpkin seeds summer salads are nice but winter salads are entirely unto themselves get a bag of winter salad mix at the atlas farm store in south deerfield Are you organized, detail-oriented, responsible, fun-loving, and a team player? The Northampton Radio Group is looking for you. We've currently got an opening for a part-time office assistant. The job is right out front, so you have to like people. A knowledge of Microsoft Office is essential, and a sense of humor is a must. Send your resume and cover letter to Office Position, Northampton Radio Group, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Mass., 01060, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer.
6: Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
1: We continue our conversation with Dave Waddles, who is giving his talk on black bears, sponsored by Historic Northampton. That's this Thursday, February 2nd at 7 o'clock. Sign up on on the Historic Northampton website. It will be a Zoom presentation. And so you have no reason to have to go through the forest and meet the bears in order to come and hear about the bears. But I want to hear about this, Dave Waddles, if you would, please. We shouldn't be seeing bears now, right? They Shouldn't they be hibernating? Uh, they, they got the memo on that?
6: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, each winter, our, our bears hibernate, and it's really a mechanism to deal with the lack of food for them in winter. Uh, bears are omnivorous, but the vast majority of their diet is plant-based. Um, they're not a true predator, so they can't ch- chase down prey. So in winter, there's not much food available for them. So they, they hibernate to deal with that lack of food for the winter months.
1: Well, during the break, Dan Torres raised with you this question. On one hand, you told us that bears are vegetarians. So far, so good. On the other hand, you were telling us about the uh, uh, unhappy uh, and now deceased chickens that are well, a result <laughs> of bears uh, being in town and or being places where people are keeping chickens for eggs uh, in their backyard. So how do you square those two facts?
6: Yeah. So I, I may have misspoken there. They, they truly are omnivorous, but the, it's the, the vast majority of their diet is plant-based and vegetarian. And so um, they're more opportunistic when they will take meat. So it can be chickens and those kind of things, carrion and dead animals, or they'll opportunistically take deer fawns when they're first born in the spring, that sort of thing for their meat.
1: Um, you told us that black bears basically are nice. Uh, that's I think that's the technical <laughs> the technical definition. They're nice. Uh, they're they're not really a danger to people. Um, and on the other hand, you said obviously if we were, there were grizzlies, I don't think there are grizzlies in this area, um, or if there were uh, brown bears, that would be different. Uh, how do we tell the difference? And are there any dangerous bears that we actually need to be wary of here in Western Massachusetts? I mean, how do I know that the bear at my uh, uh, bird feeder is one of the nice ones.
6: So uh, there there are no brown bears uh, east of the Mississippi. So they're only out in Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, those states. So every bear in the east is going to be a black bear. Um, while I said they're not inherently aggressive towards people, it's still important to remember that they are a several hundred pound, uh, large, very powerful animal. And so they certainly have the potential to injure people, which is why we encourage people to not feed bears, to not provide food around your homes, so bears aren't close to our homes and neighborhoods. Um, when people are injured by bears, it tends to be chance encounters. So a bear is regularly coming to someone's bird feeder. They let the dog out the sliding glass door. There's now a confrontation. You go out to get your dog and unfortunately you get swiped by the bear. Or a bear is regularly in a dumpster uh, and someone goes out at 10 o'clock at night to put their garbage in the dumpster, they're five feet away from the bear, the bear acts defensively, the person loses. So people are injured by black bears, um, but they're they're not going out of their way to to injure people. It tends to be those chance encounters.
1: So if I see a bear and it's, you know, close, but no, I'm not immediately, or even if I am immediately in its presence, what am I supposed to do?
6: Yep. Uh, to give it space, uh, it's important to to respect the size and power that they have. And so this is what one of the issues we often have when bears end up in urban areas. Uh, it's often something that people haven't seen, so they try to get closer to take a picture of something, and that can push the bear further into development or you know make the bear nervous. So so give it space. Back off um, and, and enjoy the sighting, but don't try to get too close.
1: So high, would you pose, please? I'd like a close-up. That's a, you'd put that under the category of bad ideas.
6: Exactly. Yeah, many many times people can make these situations uh, much worse, and just just getting people away will resolve the situation, and the bear will eventually leave on their own.
2: So, is there- but, we are, but we are we are taught to raise our arms high if we come into a, an encounter that we didn't know. Raise our hand and make a lot of noise. That's what we're taught to be as tall as possible. And as loud as possible, and the black bear will run away. I've done that four or five times, and it always seems to work. Are we supposed to follow Buzz's instruction on this, or, or should we ignore him?
6: No, nope, Buzz is actually correct. You know, if you're, out, <laughs> you're out hiking or you're on a trail or something, and you encounter a bear. It's good to to let it know. So that's let it know that you're a person. So that's why you you know you speak in a loud but assertive voice. Um, wave your arms, make yourself look bigger, and then back up to increase the space with that animal. And then they will waddle
2: away. Is that what happens? Yeah.
6: (laughs) And it it is important to know, though, that there are instances where black bears are predatory towards people. Um, And it's not very common at all. Um, But if you're ever on a trail and a bear is pursuing you and you chase it off and it just, Next thing you know, you turn around and it's right there again, and it keeps following you. It's a, that's a situation where you want to get out of there um, and get to a safe location, back to your car as quickly as possible, and, and definitely notify authorities.
1: We have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Dave Waddles, who is a black bear and fur bearer biologist for Mass. Wildlife, who'll be presenting through historic Northampton this Thursday at seven o'clock. Thank you so much. It sounds like a fascinating talk. Can't wait.
6: My pleasure.
4: Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities, as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160.
0: Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950 WHMP Northampton WHMQ Greenfield Northampton radio group station.
5: It's 10 o'clock. I'm Jess Tyler with your national news on WHMP Memphis police say two more officers involved in the arrest.